Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. Let's get right out there and say it, y'all. This week was a doozy. As in, more of a doozy than any of the other weeks we've managed to survive in the literal living hell of 2020. We started off with the news of Donald Trump only paying $750 in taxes. A stunning New York Times report on President Trump's tax returns shows he paid just $750 in federal income tax in 2016 and 2017, and none at all for 10 of the previous 15 years before that. And then the news that coronavirus deaths had surpassed 1 million worldwide. Tonight, the confirmed global death toll from COVID just reached 1 million, a staggering figure, though the World Health Organization believes the real number may be even higher. And oh yeah, there was that awful presidential debate. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you answer that because question? the you question is, the question Supreme is, radical question, left. Will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? And that only takes us to Tuesday. But as the election draws closer, as in we're one month away from determining the future of America closer, I can't shake a feeling that makes me very uncomfortable. Maybe you felt it during the debate this week, too. I mean, how could you not? It's a mix of outrage and resentment. The feeling that your blood is boiling, except it never comes down to a simmer. Maybe it sometimes results in either rage fantasies or complete rage blackouts. It's hatred. Plain and simple. I can't help it. I hate President Donald Trump. Like, a lot. But on top of hating him and wishing bad things would happen to him, I also feel guilty for hating him. You know, the whole when they go low, we go high and all of that. I feel like I, especially the host of a religious podcast, should be better than this. But you know what? Maybe I'm not. After all, why should we go high? Especially when people's lives are on the line. Especially when we've had all the evidence to vote this man out and yet he's still holding a close margin in the polls. Especially when the future is at stake. To help me parse through some of these feelings, I wanted to consult some clergy. So today, we have a rabbi and a reverend who are going to help explain what faith says about hatred, revenge, and rising above, and if any of it applies to Donald Trump and his supporters. First up, we have the Reverend Broderick Greer. Reverend Greer, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Philip. You're you're just the best, and I look up to you and (laughs) admire all of your work. I'm, I'm just honored that you're having me today. You are making me blush, which is is really good because you're setting a positive tone for this conversation. And and I'm going to take this conversation to a dark place. Are you ready to go there with me? Yes, it's a it's it's my zip code. So, yes. (laughs) Okay, perfect. So, listen, I have been dealing with some emotions Mm. in Catholicism. We go to confession when we feel like we've sinned. So. This is sort of like me getting to talk to you is exciting and it's an honor, but it's also like I feel a little bit like catharsis, confession, childhood trauma from Catholicism, (laughs) all of these things happening at once. I'm having this issue where when I read about Donald Trump, I get angry 
and I get outraged and I feel like I hate him mm. and that I want bad things to happen to him and everyone he loves. And I know that maybe I need to work through these feelings because they're not something that a good Christian would exhibit. Mm. Am I correct in assuming that? I think that is a, a very common assumption. Absolutely. It's a common assumption, but is it correct? It's complicated. Okay. Um, I, I think that the Bible, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, both have broad enough imagination and capacity to accommodate a range of emotions. And actually, really specifically in the Psalms, basically the psalmist is expressing great disdain for their enemies mm -hmm. and says that I want their offspring's heads to be dashed up against the rocks. Yes, that's, I feel, I agree with that psalmist. <laughs> I feel seen and represented. Yes, yes. Representation matters, even in the Bible. And I think that there is at least permission to feel what we feel. One of my favorite stories is of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, Exodus 2. It's the very beginning of the book of Exodus. And Pharaoh has issued this edict that all of the chill, all of the firstborn boys are to be killed. Okay. And these women, it's the first labor union in the Bible, actually. They organize together, they're organized labor, and they begin delivering these babies. And instead of killing them, they save them. Okay. And one of them, of course, is Moses. And these are, these are women, Afro-Asiatic women, Hebrew women, who are butting heads with an empire that wants their destruction. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing what the empire or the emperor has told them to do, they organize and resist. And I don't know exactly how they felt about Pharaoh, but I would think that anger and hatred and disdain and contempt are probably one of those emotions. Right. So I think at least scripturally, you know, if you want to talk about the Bible, you know, as one particular lens for Christianity there is room and space for anger and hatred in one's imagination. Right. In, in, in other words, you're talking about honoring the feelings. And, honoring, I, and yeah. I think that that's an important thing, right? That rather than feeling shame about these feelings, maybe I have to confront them in a way because I have been used to the Bible verse and, and, and Reverend Greer, I'm embarrassed to say that I know this Bible verse not from <laughs> church, but from the Mariah Carey song, I Wish You Well, <laughs> off of her criminally underrated album, E equals MC squared. Mm -hmm. And um, in the song, she says, love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, pray for those who mistreat you. And then she does a couple of other riffs. So that's the Bible verse that I know and that I have been repeating to myself when I have rage fantasies about the president. Mm. Is that something I should also be holding? Yeah, I, I think that's fine. I mean, it, it really depends on the end for you and, and for okay. me as well. And when I say that, I mean, you know, what is the goal? Is the goal over a lifetime as a Christian, 
as a baptized person, to be a person who is forgiving and who can exercise the muscles of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I use that that term, that phrasing very intentionally because forgiveness is not necessarily something that happens, number one, overnight, and number two, all at once. And mm-hmm. so I think we have to be able to give ourselves the permission to say, I, I want to orient myself toward the, the goal of being a forgiving person, maybe, mm-hmm. um, if I you know, can get to that point. And sometimes the desire to forgive is as good as forgiveness itself. So in other words, I don't actually have to forgive this asshole. <laughs> I can just hold it in my heart to say, I want to forgive you. Exactly. And and the only thing, though, too, I just don't want any other people. Like, if people don't feel like they can forgive Donald Trump, they don't need to put themselves under the pressure to do that. And we're not going to go to hell for that? I don't think so. No. Oh, okay. All right. That's news to me. I thought the goal was always, I'm a Christian, and so I need to embody the compassion of Jesus Christ, which is, I'm going to forgive even the people who crucified me and I, because I have God's love and I am enlightened in God's love and I am a child of God. I thought that's where, I thought that's the whole point of this whole Christianity thing. I, I'm, I'm really happy you brought that up because it's a great segue to something I was thinking about just before our conversation. In my work, I talk to a lot of people who, you know, themselves, they struggle with forgiveness and they struggle with, well, really the, the word forgiveness originally in Greek is very close to our English expression for letting go, mm. which is such a great image. And a lot of people do struggle with letting go, whether someone has hurt them or, you know, some circumstance, diagnosis, et cetera, has befallen them. And our minds, of course, and our imaginations go directly to the cross. And and there, Jesus, as you said, is hanging. He's been through a mistrial. He's there unjustly. And one of the only things he utters from the cross in one of the Gospels is something really fascinating and indirect, honestly. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Exactly. So it's really interesting that Jesus does not look at the people who's crucifying him and says, I forgive you because you don't know what you're doing. He actually, in many ways, says, and if I'm using my sanctified imagination, he is saying, I don't in this moment have the capacity to forgive you. Oh, that's how you interpret that? That's how I interpret that. I think that's really powerful. I think it is. I I think it shows, I mean, you know, I'm a, in many ways, a pretty traditional, you know, kind of Trinitarian Christian. I believe in, in Christ's humanity and his divinity. And I think in that moment, he is very human because it's very human to say, I don't have the imagination, the capacity, the wherewithal to do this really, divine thing. And so he hands it over to God and hands ultimately himself over to God in death. So I, I don't know. I I think that gives us a little wiggle room and says, there is no pressure to forgive overnight. 
if we dive into the writings of Nelson Mandela, so, of so many different luminaries throughout history who are very clear that in their own journeys, forgiveness is, it is a journey. It is not a destination. You know, there's another Jesus story that I hold really dear. And it, I only bring it up because we're talking about Jesus on the cross, but there's this part of the New Testament where obviously Jesus flips over the tables in the temple mm-hmm. as part of an expression of outrage or, or injustice. And, and I remember being taught that as a kid as evidence of Jesus's humanity. That's how it was explained to us. See, he is human because he's flawed. He was angry. And, and as though an expression of anger is a flaw. And I have come mm. to appreciate that story through a new lens, which is that it's okay. Sometimes anger is righteous. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. And and I've, I've been holding on to this because we are constantly barraged with so much injustice and so much senseless injustice. And it's almost to the point where it feels like a mockery of justice in this country, right? And I think about Jesus getting angry and I'm like, well, if 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 even Jesus was pushed to the point to flip over a table, maybe all of us should be flipping over some goddamn tables right now. He shows us a range of possibility in human emotion that, you know, he can be comfortable with children and, you know, entertaining them in his lap, which is sort of one expression of tenderness. And in the next breath can be kind of enraged in the temple or enraged at injustice. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of that could have happened within the same 24 hour time period. Because I think the God of the Hebrew Bible you know, the God of, of all of scripture, of Christianity and for Judaism in particular, this God is a God who is emotionally deep, broad, and has the capacity to hold a lot of things at one time. And I think that Jesus incarnates that, mm. that dimension of God as well. I also love what you said about the Greek translation, was it of forgiveness being letting go because within this English word, we have the word give, right? Like as though in forgiveness, I am giving you something, right? Because I am letting you let go of whatever burden you carry for having wronged me. But I do appreciate the interpretation of this word as giving ourselves something instead, right? That by forgiving you, we wash our hands of you, right? Like that this is, this does not necessarily mean we have to build a relationship or feel tenderness and compassion for you, but rather it's, it's a gift that we can give to ourselves by no longer being burdened by the person who has harmed us. Absolutely. And, and that's complex too. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, lots of different communities have dealt with, you know, autocrats and tyrants and other types of despots in their own ways. And I think about, you know, I'm, I'm a black Southern queer person and, and really in my community of origin, my, my Afro-Baptist church I grew up in in Texas, there was lots of ridicule of George W. Bush from the pulpit in the Bush years. Mm -hmm. And I've gone back and I've looked at 
some of my childhood pastor sermons from this summer, and there's lots of ridicule of Donald Trump by name. And it's, mm-hmm. it's almost done in a humorous way. It's not like the hate or the contempt is eating the pastor or those people alive. It, it's really kind of the best of what humor does. And humor, of course, is related to our English word humility, which is related to a word in Latin that means from the ground. Mm. It, it, it's about being human. It's about humor, humility. Sometimes things that can sound like hatred from one particular community is really their way of expressing their humanity through humor. Mm. And that's something that I really appreciate about my community of origin, that to my parents even, Donald Trump is a joke. You know, there isn't this existential hand-wringing from them that I hear, you know, from various people from who aren't from my community of origin. And there's a lightness because they know that just as you know, God defeated Pharaoh and God defeated in many ways Bull Connor in the 1960s. And God has been faithful to defeat tyrants and autocrats of all kinds. Donald Trump will have his final day as well. And so there can be a lightness and a humility and a humor about that. Even as it feels like the world is burning all around us. Absolutely. I'm sure that your parents and your elders have in many ways seen worse than what Donald Trump is doing to our country. Absolutely. Mm. From their neighbors, not even a Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, th- that's exactly right. And in a way, it, it's, a, it's a privilege for me to sort of be having a revelation that I hate and resent a politician when plenty of people who came before me and plenty of people who are my even my peers or colleagues or loved ones uh, have experienced these feelings tenfold uh, in their own lifetimes. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah, it de- well, it depends. Okay. I'm well, joking. You can decide if you want to answer. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I mean, gosh, it's your podcast. You can keep your business if you want. Do you ever pray for Donald Trump's supporters? Like, do you pray for enlightenment or a change of heart or? Wow. Are you sure you're not the priest in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my dad always wanted me to be a priest. He didn't know what else I was going to do as a homosexual. So. Oh, that's so funny. There are plenty of those. Um, <laughs> you know, not in particular. I pray for our country and... What do you pray for when you pray for our country? For our common life. We're interconnected whether we like that or not. Like I I have to, we we share this country, we share a history, we share this land that is, you know, has been unethically and immorally taken from indigenous Mm -hmm. people. You know, Alice Walker in in the early 1980s was at a denuclearization rally in San Francisco. And she quoted a curse prayer written by Zora Neale Hurston. A curse prayer. Okay, a curse I love prayer. Where this is going. It, it's it's really awesome, and it's kind of the best of 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 an indigenous African American sort of 
cosmology and understanding of the world. She basically says, I really would like to think that these nuclear weapons will just destroy this world that white men have conquered. And to paraphrase her, she says, and then I think about a peach and its sweetness and its texture. And I think to myself, wow, I really don't want our world to be destroyed by nuclear weapons. If only just for the peaches. I think Mm. we should stick this out. Because we have to share this country, I think about the good things that we do have. And, 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 you know, we're kind of coming to the end of peach season. And it's like, wow, you know, I've savored this fruit. I've savored this experience. I've savored this thing, whatever it is. And, And that is my will to live. And that is my will to see others live and thrive as well, even if they don't have my best interest in mind. And they don't need to be enlightened. They don't need to come to some better understanding or whatever. They really just need to leave us alone. And that was the attitude I was brought up with, with Black parents. is like, we don't need white people to like us. We really, like, we don't need them to be our friends. We really just need them to not mess with us and let us live in our own peace. I love that. And so it's a similar ideology here. It's like, you can do... I don't need to worry about you. I don't need to spend my time praying for you or exercising compassion for you or trying to find a way to forgive you. Just leave me the hell alone so I can enjoy this peach. Exactly. Mm. When I was telling a friend about this interview and, you know, what we were planning on talking about, he said, how can you be a Christian and not hate Donald Trump? I mean, it's a great question. I was like, why are you not on this podcast? Like, why why am I doing this and not you? Um, but listen, his question. base is full of Christians. It, it is. And that's that's another discussion for another it time. It sure is. I, and I don't want to go there today because I think the mockery um, and abuse of Christianity um, exhibited by the Republican Party and the radical right is is definitely a conversation That has been well documented. I think for the rest of us who are trying to figure out what to do with these feelings, especially as we head towards what will almost undoubtedly be a contested election, an unnecessarily contested election, um, I think this has been extremely illuminating and comforting. So I thank you so much for uh, your insight and your scripture Um, And also for the concept of a curse prayer. I will be holding that very dear to my heart. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll be right back after a quick break. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Stitcher. A small town, a brutal murder. Witness Docs from Stitcher presents a journey into the heart of America's unfinished business. Listen to Unfinished Deep South a new podcast that races to resolve the unfinished business of a small Arkansas town by starting with one question. Who lynched Isadora Banks? 66 years after the murder of a wealthy African-American farmer and World War I veteran who found a way to prosper in the Jim Crow South, this investigative true crime series attempts to restore his legacy and solve the crime before the story goes cold forever. By illuminating one man's life, this story explores the system of white supremacy that surrounded Banks, traced in forgotten court records, fading FBI files, and testimony of elderly witnesses. Listen and subscribe to Unfinished Deep South right now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean 
every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hey there, it's been a while, but we had some tech issues this week. And partway through my conversation with Abby, the audio will switch to our backup. I hope you still listen because it's a great conversation and I know you'll enjoy it. Reverend Greer helped explain where Christianity stands on Trump. But of course, this is not just a Jesus thing. So to hear from a different faith perspective, I spoke to the activist and ordained rabbi Abby Stein about her position on being anti-Trump. Here's what she had to say. Abby, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this challenging conversation. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Philip, and I'm really honored to be a part of it. And on that note, I want to dive right into the million dollar question. Are you ready? Are we ever ready? We can only... Um... <laughs> <laughs> to, to use another, I know I'm trying to sound like a rabbi all over again, but to use a saying that I think is very powerful that we use a lot, which is that we have to do, not accomplish. Okay, well, this is a spiritual question. Okay. And that is that I am wondering if it is moral for me to hate President Donald Trump. Um, yes. Hands down. It is? I think so. Well, hey, listen, some people think that I'm not uh, uh, Jewish enough, not religious enough, not faithful enough, not rabbi enough. But if you're asking me what my personal opinion is, the answer is yes. But also even more, if you want to look on it from a, a spiritual perspective, and if I may, and, and I don't want to confuse spiritual with religious. I think people could be right. one and not the other. People could be both. People could be none and be amazing people. Right. One of the, I think, very oftenly abused uh, verses in the book of Psalms in Tehillim is Halomisan Echa Adonai Esna, which translates to as for your enemies. God, or I like to talk about it as divine or the universe. For your enemies, I am obligated to hate. And I think, I think a lot about, when I think about God, I don't like the way it has been used. And I think from a, let's call it academic or like very traditional definition of the Abrahamic God, I would be considered a full-blown atheist. And frankly, I actually love that. I'm very comfortable with that. And I think in some ways there's a power to that. However, on the other side, when you want to talk about God, not as the boogeyman in the sky, but rather as a way for us to relate to the sum total of all there is. One of the interpretations of the Hebrew four-letter word for God, which is Yahweh or Adonai or Yidhei whatever you want to say that, but the four-letter original name of God in the Bible and in the Torah is that it actually means being. Imagine being with a capital B. So I think okay. someone who is an enemy, when I want to think someone who's an enemy of that, an enemy of the sum total of all there is, an enemy of the world, an enemy of humanity, that person, I don't even like to say his name. In, in Judaism, there is something very strongly about um, uh, not giving power to people by even naming them. If I want to take that verse in Psalms and be that the enemies of 
Adonai, of God, which to me very much translates to the enemies of the universe, the enemies of the sum total of all there is. I think God, for me, the closest definition of God that I like is a word to relate to what is at the core of it all. Something that unifies all there is. And we can look at it from a scientific point of view, where the core of everything, literally everything that exists, is made of the same, the same thing. Everything is made up of atoms. But um, if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, if I want to think who is that enemy, when that verse tells me the enemies of God you should hate, I right now in the United States, one of the people that comes to mind is him. So... Um, with the power given to me by the rabbi who ordained me, I'm telling you, you can hate him. Okay. I mean, I appreciate this. It feels it feels vindicating. Do you think there's a difference between holding this animosity towards Donald Trump, which feels very righteous, you know, from your point of view and, and also from my point of view? Um, is it okay to also extend that animosity towards the people who support him? Here's the thing. I think we do need to, many of the people, unfortunately, yes, but. Um, what I mean by that, th there's a lot of stories that I grew up, uh, and I grew up very much in the share of the Holocaust. Extremely strong. I know a lot of people think that American Jews, and, and I think the vast majority of American Jews um, are either descendants directly or not directly from Holocaust survivors, but I grew up in the Hasidic community where about 95% of people were Holocaust survivors. I remember at some point at school when I realized that I was so unique because only three out of my four grandparents were Holocaust survivors because my grandmother was born in Jerusalem that was never conquered by the Nazis, versus the majority of my friends in school were all four of their grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So I grew up in a community that was extremely heavily influenced by the Holocaust. And one of the stories that was constantly told about Hitler and, and coming from a very like Kabbalistic almost perspective was how like, that same kind of person has been in the world, has been in the world many times. And every time that whatever, I don't even think we can call it a soul, but that person did some, some of the worst things ever. And, and it's a story that I grew up with. I, I don't think it's meant to be taken literal, but, and this message came that it got to a point where this, uh, some leaders were saying that we're begging that it's enough. Kind of like whatever you're looking at from God or from heaven or the universe, we have given that kind of person enough chances and it's only getting worse. I would be very cautious to ever say that I hate someone. I usually, I, I personally, I, I can't think of a single person I know in my life that I super hate. And I mean, someone I know personally, thankfully, I don't know him. I don't know the president that personally. But I mean, for people I know personally, there are people I disagree with. There are people I strongly disagree with. There are people whose opinions I hate, but I always try to say that I think for most people, there is still hope, so to speak. I think that, mo I like to think, and maybe I'm a bit naive, but I like to think that for most people, there's something that could change their mind. I, I think we need to believe that, not to naively believe that. So I, I like, however, and that goes up to certain people. It gets to a point where someone is just like, Okay, enough. Like, I can't, you have done so many bad things that I, I can no longer separate your actions from you. And I think with supporters, however, well, as much as I hate to say it, and I've had conversations, I, 
come from a community that has a lot of supporters for him, which most of them is mis um, uh, misinformation. Most of them don't even know what it really stands for, other than a few things that they were told. And as much as I think that it's very easy, and I think ultimately everyone would support them, their actions end up being racist and homophobic and transphobic and literally kill people. But mm -hmm. that might not be the reason why they support him. While they are, there are some people who support him only because of his hateful rhetoric and his hateful actions. So I, would, I wouldn't right. go as far as to say that we could just hate every supporter. I would say that we can hate the actions of every supporter. I can say that it's that if someone does come and tells me I hate every supporter, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't be angry at them. I can't. Um, but personally, maybe I'm naive and I like to believe that there's still good in every person. Right. It's interesting that you know you bring up the. Holocaust and being a descendant of the Holocaust, because I do wonder if we will look back in history at this moment in, in time and look at Donald Trump as a figure similar to Adolf Hitler or many of the dictators that I think um, so. that we've seen throughout history. I think he is. You do think well, so? Well, in many ways. Here's the thing: everyone jumps. A lot of even Jews. Every time someone tries to make a uh, uh, illusion or tries to compare something to the Holocaust, right? Oh, it's not as bad. I think we keep forgetting that when people after the Holocaust started saying never again, no one meant to say that never again and that the next time someone creates a concentration camp that starts killing a million people, we're going to speak up. The point of never again always was that we're going to speak up when something is 1933, not when something is 1939 for someone who gets Holocaust history. Mm. We're going to speak up before mm. synagogues start being shoot up and, and burned down, which unfortunately we already passed that. Synagogues are already being shot up by people who literally quote him in their writing. We're already at a point where churches and mosques are being burned down because of his government. We're already at, we're no longer at 1933. I, I sometimes say we're getting at 1938. The concentration camps are already up, which is when I think the Nazis started, like the death camps came a bit later, but the concentration camps, that's when they started. We read the stories of like the, the one that came out just a few weeks ago, vasectomies, I think it was, uh, that they were doing, I don't know if you remember that story, they were doing to immigrant women in the camps. Uh, hysterectomies, hysterectomies, yes, mass yes. hysterectomies. Which is literally what Mengele was doing in Auschwitz. Now, don't jump right. at me and be like, oh, but they're not as bad. What are you talking about? No, I'm not saying it as bad. I'm not trying to say that we're gassing millions of people. But the point is never again. The point, the messages that we need to take of the Holocaust is that the Holocaust didn't happen in some bubble. It didn't happen hundreds of years ago. It didn't even happen a hundred years ago. It didn't, it didn't happen out of nowhere. It happened from a certain rhetoric that has been building up. And when we say never again, we meant to say that when we start seeing even the slightest seeds of that, that's when we start making the comparison. Because if never again only means something when millions of people have been killed, then never again is meaningful. Never again is meant to I mean, be used before we get there. Right. Yeah. I I know that recently you observed Yom Kippur, which I Literally understand is a day of atonement. Yeah. Yes. And it's I understand it's a day of atonement yeah. and reflection yeah. um, in the Jewish faith. So I guess in, in closing, I'm wondering what you personally may have reflected on 
on Yom Kippur and and maybe what you want to leave our listeners with today? Well, if I may get a bit hopeful, and again, I'm afraid someone is going to listen yes, to this. I feel please. like I feel like someone who is more in the hopeful sense, would be great. Yeah, I think people on the center are going to listen to this and be like, "He's some radical, whatever." And then we're going to get people on the left who are going to be like, "No, you have to hate every supporter." It's fine. <laughs> um, but I wanted to say so last night, and and I shared that publicly during the so for the first night, so like Sunday night, which was the Kipper, I um. I led a service together with my girlfriend, which I think was very powerful. I just want to say, I know it's unrelated to our conversation, but we had 2,000 people tune in live to a lesbian couple leading a, a Yom Kippur the whole day in, for many Jews uh, service. And I think that was extremely powerful to me. But then on, on the second night, kind of like the, the last hour of Yom Kippur, I was tuning into the service of my community in New York and everything, uh, like most communities, everything was still virtual. And towards the end, um, some people, like the, the rabbi, the, the, who's actually a close friend of mine, I mentioned in my book, which, uh, by the way, I know we haven't gotten to that at all, but um, it's somebody who helped me come out to my dad. Um, and um, he just gave people 30 seconds to say something. And one of the poems, one of these uh, uh, kind of sentences that are recited, and they're very powerfully known from that prayer, that final moment of Yom Kippur, is something that says, open up the gates as the gates are closing. Which to me was always like, I, I tweeted it yesterday and was like, my favorite oxymoron. It's like, the gates are closing and that's when we want to open it. And I think it sounds maybe a bit too hopeful, but so much right now feels like all the gates are closing. The Supreme Court is going, the, we're listening to the elections and like, I'm looking on the polls and uh, yes, so far Biden is leading, but so was Hillary in 2016. Like we're looking on it, is this really going to be? And, and, and we need to know that if we're not going to take action, uh, it's not magically going to be better because four years have passed. But we need to remember the one thing that I took away from Yom Kippur was that just when we think everything is over, everything is closing, there's always something. There's there's another gate that is opening, and if there isn't one, we need to create one. If we don't have the key, we take a sledgehammer and we knock the gate open. Abby, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, Philip, so much. Okay, now that we've gotten all that hatred out of our systems, I'm feeling a little bit better, actually. I'd like to introduce a new segment here on Unholier Than Thou. It's called, Am I Going to Hell for This? Where I'll be asking some of my favorite people to help me parse through the nagging feeling that I'm doomed to suffer from eternal damnation. Catholic guilt, you should try it sometime. This week, I'm wondering, am I going to hell for judging others about their behavior during the coronavirus pandemic? Joining me is Akila Hughes, the author, comedian, and host of Crooked Media's daily news podcast, What A Day. Akila, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast so people can't see you, but I can see you. And I think <laughs> it's unfair that you are are smart, funny, and gorgeous. I wow. I am absolutely <laughs> floored by this. This is my favorite podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for thinking I'm good looking. Wow. Um, okay, so you are here not just to be beautiful today, but also to tell me whether or not I am going to hell. Yeah. It's a, I mean, a lot of responsibility, but I'm excited to help. Someone's got to do the job and, and, it, and it, it's, it should be you, I think. Okay. So one of the things I'm worried about is that I feel like there is a line that has been crossed in the coronavirus pandemic mm -hmm. where 
we want to be good neighbors to each other and be good and responsible citizens. But maybe some of us, raise his hand meekly, are becoming Judge Judy's about the whole coronavirus situation. So my question to you is, do you think that I'm going to hell for judging people for inappropriate coronavirus behavior? See, this is a great question. It's actually, you know, a beautiful philosophical question. Biblically speaking, you know, judging is not something we're supposed to do. Right. However, we're supposed to love thy neighbor, <laughs> according to yes. this book. And so I think that, you know, in effect, you are looking out for other people, and that outweighs maybe, you know, the person whose feelings are hurt because they went to a Starbucks and you saw them there, like, licking all the knobs. Like, I think <laughs> that you're allowed wow. to point out what it's cray. Um, Ariana Grande tease. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, what I imagine is that, um, you know, someone who might have not reacted to the coronavirus uh, disaster when they had information, say, back in February and just, like, let 200,000 people die uh, is going to have a hard afterlife. And I can't imagine that you would be there beside that person <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you told people to stop going out and spreading it. I think you're, if anything, like, this will propel you in the other direction. <laughs> okay, now, first of all, thank you for that generous evaluation of my character. I, I do want to tell you, I'm, I'm just going to confess in this moment, in the spirit of Catholicism, that a part of the motivation for judging people is a little bit of just like jealousy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I saw, I, as far as I know, you're not a homosexual male. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, not. I'm not that. Not. Okay. <laughs> so, um, there was this meme that circulated because there were a bunch of gays who went to Tulum and they took a group photo, like <laughs> all in their speedos. There was one girl there, which like, I really want to know her entire backstory. Yeah. Like and, was she driving and, the bus or like, <laughs> I mean, ser like, seriously, <laughs> she lost, so she wandered into the photo. They're like, we can't, we don't have the heart to tell her not to be in it. <laughs> so they posted this photo and the caption of the photo was parentheses, private island, all tested multiple times negative for COVID. And I thought to myself, God, I wish I was an asshole. Like, yeah. I wish I was enough of an asshole to just A, lie on the internet. You were not yeah. on a private island. Tulum is not a private island. And right. then B, enjoy vacation. Like, God, I'm so tired of looking at the inside of my apartment. I feel that. Dude, I like, it's so hard. The cognitive dissonance is the hardest part of the entire coronavirus crisis because I'm like, I know I'm doing the right thing, but I'm watching other people live better lives. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if I could wait till death until I'm rewarded for this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something's got to give. Like, I sh I deserve twice as much stimulus one day. If they're, you know, if they're doing like two grand a month retroactively for everyone, which is like one of the proposals. I'm like, yeah, no, I deserve twice as much. Anybody who went on a trip somewhere just for fun? Like, not because, like, somebody in their family. Honestly, I don't know why people are tripping. I don't get it. <laughs> but <laughs> I get really bothered by it because it's like, you're right. It's a lie. But it's also, like, it's it completely misses the point of the fact that there are, like, you know, people who work in hospitals who have died, who've had to sacrifice everything, people who are, like, working in schools who are getting sick, all of these people who can't get a rapid test – Especially not just to, like, go have fun with their friends <laughs> for a picture. Like, right. I get that some people have different means, but I'm like, well, just be quiet about it. Like, especially in the economic downturn, I'm like, yo, when they say eat the rich, they come in for you first. They're going to be like, was this you in Mexico? <laughs> yes, right. And in and, and a way, this is exactly, you get to the crux of the point, which I think is the most important thing, which is that our situations are different. And, and that 
is wrapped up in our privilege, but also just our circumstances, which may be, we may not interact with um, older folks. We may all have the luxury of working from home. And so therefore we can have an expansive uh, pod of friends who are all doing the same thing. And so therefore we all understand each other's risk. And so we can go to dinner at someone's house and there can be up to 10 people there and we can be outside and, and it can be fine. But also maybe just for the sake of the fact that other people aren't in this aren't in your same circumstances maybe don't broadcast it all over instagram right. do you know what right. i mean mind yes. your business and i'll mind mine right exactly that's exactly it because i'm like i just i think it's the selfishness on display which is like i don't know in many ways shorthand for all of the reckonings that are happening in our country right now but i think that there mm. is something just that's like very off putting and like rude about someone who would brag about it like when so many people are suffering like I think that that's what's hard for me is like even if it's just like okay I don't know anybody who died and like whatever I'm like that's 200,000 families more than that now and people mm -hmm. who are like still sick hundreds of days later <laughs> who may be mm -hmm. sick for the rest of their lives and yep. you know the joke like the gag is just like oh well we wanted to go on a trip and we look good and we're young so like let's post some pics together and I'm like you know no one's gonna be rooting for you if something happens <laughs> Right. Right. And on the flip side, do you think that I'm going to hell if I make or if I take risks that may be against social distancing guidelines? That's the that's the flip side of this question. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good question. It's a very poignant question. You know, since I don't run hell, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't Contrary have all to of the say, opinion. but right, exactly. Like I know based on, you know, the background of my video, it looks like I'm living in it. But um, <laughs> literally, I just think that, you know, I imagine that religiously speaking, biblically speaking, it's not just one thing that gets you sent there. But I will say that, like, I am inclined to believe that people are more selfish than they may be based on those photos. Like, I am swayed based on only that evidence. Right. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm sure You're God will be like, to well, that one time. To hell, you mean? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, like, Go ahead. <laughs> at least, like, a minute, you know, like, purgatory at at least. Like, I right. think that there's, you know, maybe it's, like, a week of hell. And then you get to come back and, like you know, state the case for the rest of the good things you did in your life. But I do think that there is like a you special place You have to spend as much hell. time in hell as you spent in your private island. Oh, I love that. You know, that's, that, that to me rule. is fair. I think okay, that's we fair. should be God. We should be God. <laughs> uh, God, if you're listening, um, we have some <laughs> notes. One, can you end the crisis? Two, can you please like implement some of these rules? <laughs> Seriously. I think that there is a difference between making an informed risk, especially at this point in the, in the pandemic, where our government has just failed us so miserably. Right. And obviously, people are going to need to bend the rules to keep themselves sane because yeah. mental health and preserving mental health and super raising important. your mental health is super important. And so sometimes the risks do out, outweigh each other, but obviously you have to use your best judgment and hopefully that best judgment will not land you in hell. Akila, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me today in this deliberation. I feel like I have confessed and my conscience is clean. I am ready for the angels to take me to heaven. Yes. I can't wait for you to go to heaven and I cannot wait to get dragged to hell for saying that people should go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I will wave down on you very you. like like Beyonce at a basketball game. Yes, that's all I can ask. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Akila. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Well, now that we know where we stand on hell and hatred, that's all for today's show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends, clergy members, and local elected officials. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Elisa Gutierrez is our producer, with production support from Ruben Davis. Our editor is Stephen Colon. The theme song is by Takuya Suzawa, and the show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.